So here's our, our outline. We're going to look at a couple key passages where Matthew tells us why he wrote. That is, he's kind of amplify the whole purpose of this book. And then we're going to look at the structure of the book. And this will involve a lot of page turning. So we're just going to view over huge chunks in a moment to see how the book is written around five sermons and four major story parts. And then we're going to dig in at the end to the first seven things that Jesus says in the book, which will lead us up to the seventh one is the Sermon on the Mount, which is something we'll look at more closely this Wednesday as we look at Matthew throughout the whole season of Lent. So to start with, I want you to find Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20 on your pew Bible. This is page 900. And 93. This is the last thing in the entire book. It's not the first words of Jesus in the New Testament. It's the last words of Jesus in the first book about him in the New Testament. And in it, he tells us what we are to be about as Christians. This passage is famous in the last century and a half as something called the Great Commission. And those who teach about the Great Commission put all the emphasis, usually, on the first word. You look at it, it says, go. And from that word, go, they exposit an entire theology of mission. We've talked about mission recently, and how I do not believe the Bible teaches the primary thing the church does is make non-Christians into Christians. I do believe that happens, and we should want that to happen, and we shouldn't stop it from happening. I just don't think it's the main thing Jesus said, focus on that. Instead, the main thing Jesus said to focus on is keeping what we have. Not that we would keep the Christians we have, although that too, but that all of us who are Christians want to keep our faith in Christ. That this is a holy deposit that we are given by God as the stewardship of faith that brings us from this life to the next. I also firmly believe that when a congregation and a people make their individual and group life about keeping that faith, that we will have people who are not Christians become Christians. That the mission everybody wants to make happen by saying, go, 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 is more likely to happen when we say, keep, keep, keep. Keep this word. Now, the text does say go in the English, it's one of two, I'm going to get grammatical here, okay? It's one of two verbs in the sentence. You have go and you have and make. See that? Go and make. Now, the thing is, if you dig into the Greek, there are not two verbs like that, two imperatives. Do this, do that. The first one is something called a participle. And now I did make you go to sleep, right? I said participle. There's actually two more participles in the section. Participles are ing words. They're phrase starters. They're additions to the main idea. Okay, so there's there are three additions to the main idea, but the main idea is not go. The main idea is not even make, as the English says. In the Greek, it's one word. It's just disciple. So going disciple is what it says. Going disciple all nations, not countries. 
all peoples, every type of people, race and racism and anti-racism and critical race theory, shove it out the window. There is one race where humans were descended from Adam. He went toe-to-toe with the devil and lost. Jesus went toe-to-toe with the devil and won. And because of that, as we who know that go, we disciple all peoples. That is, everyone who believes this continues in discipline. To disciple is to teach, but teaching is to discipline. We don't mean punishment. What we mean is like unto when you have a tree growing on a rocky precipice and the wind is blowing against it. That tree is going to blow, uh, grow sideways eventually, right? But you can discipline the tree. You can put some things around the tree that will make the tree go straight. That discipline might even kind of create a few notches in the tree, things that feel like pain. But at the end of the day, the tree is going to grow straight. That is the way that the word of God, both law and gospel works on you. It disciplines you. It helps you, makes you to grow straight. And what Jesus says again, that the entire point of the church is, and what Matthew finishes his book on is saying that church and Christ and our life together is to, as we go, wherever we go, be disciplined. How? That's what the rest of these additional parts are. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. How? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Remember that to baptize is just a Greek word. I don't know why. Sometimes we take the Greek word and we shove it into English. So baptizo just gets translated as baptize. When with most words, we translate them as they actually say them, as as they mean the word to mean. So what it means, if you were a Greek person, you wouldn't hear baptism and think of holy baptism. You'd hear baptism and you'd think of washing something. That's all it means is to wash with water. But now notice how the washing that's commanded is not merely with water. It is to wash with water in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. That's the first discipline of Christianity, to be baptized into Jesus, to be washed with his name. With that then, are you now free to go and live your best life however you feel like it? No, it says, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. We might translate that as Lutherans, catechizing them. But you could also just say instructing them, disciplining them to know, remember everything that Jesus said. Now, Matthew's gospel is focused on having us remember what Jesus said. The structure of the book surrounds five discourses. That's fancy talk for five sermons or five extended sections of Jesus talking. He gets in a boat and he talks. He stands on a mountain and he talks. And if you have a red letter Bible, you're going to have these huge sections of text. And Matthew wants us as Christians to pay attention to those huge sections of Jesus talking because he is the word of life who has brought the discipline of salvation to us. So as we go, wherever we go, our attention as Christians is to be disciples, to make ourselves disciples through remembering we're washed into what Jesus has said. All right, so that's point one of what the whole book's about. Point two, we're going to go backwards just two chapters to 2613. This will be on page 989 in your pew Bible. Chapter 26, verse 13, where Jesus says this. I'll have to explain a little context afterwards, but here's what he says. Jesus says, I say to you truly, 
wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Now, first, before we figure out who her is, notice how Jesus says this gospel. Jesus doesn't talk about the gospel very often. It's not a common word for him. So there's an implication here that Matthew is using this to talk about what he's written. And Jesus then, when he's preaching, knows that the story of his life is going to be written down. In fact, he calls men specifically to be apostles so they will write things down. Matthew's gospel is written by the, the, the apostle Matthew, also known as Levi, who was a tax collector, a man with exceptional writing skills. He was trained to keep track of things in a ledger and to, to know how to count this and remember that. And so he was called to write this gospel. And wherever this gospel notice is preached, it says, is proclaimed. So the point of the writing is not for it to sit on a shelf. The point of the writing is not even for you to sit there and quietly read it, although you certainly can. The point of the writing is for you to take it into your eyes and ears, into your heart, and then bring it back out of your mouth. That it would be something you talk about. That what Jesus says is true would be what you actually believe. And that will impact what you actually do. This isn't about being a goody two-shoes and quoting Bible verses left and right. You can do that. I mean, I don't mind quoting Bible verses. It's about, though, having your mind transformed to be like the mind of God, as opposed to being the natural mind that you just have because you're a son of Adam. Yeah? Because you are a son of the devil, which is what a son of Adam is when he is not transformed to be conformed to the image of Christ. All right, who's this woman? She's a woman who poured a giant bit of perfume, a very expensive bottle of perfume, all over Jesus. And a bunch of people said, why are you wasting money on that? Why would you not sell that and give the money to the poor? And Jesus says, whoa, whoa, you all got this backwards. She just declared not only who I am, but that she understands what I'm about to do. Because the type of perfume she poured on him is the type of perfume people would use in those days to put on dead bodies to keep them from smelling too much. And she put it on him while he's alive in preparation for his death, which in a moment we'll look at. That's what he once proclaimed. That's the gospel, that he's going to die, that he's going to rise. But since I brought up spending money, I, I might as well go ahead and throw this one out here, St. Paul. Uh, we're going to have to talk about something in this next year, a couple things that involve spending money. One of them is our parking lot. I don't know if you've noticed. It's, it's not the best. It's not the best. We could... We could deal with it for a year or two more, probably, and it would then be gravel at that point, right? So the, the leadership has been studying this for nearly a year and a half, and we're right at the point where they are getting bids from a couple of companies to figure out what it will finally cost to put in place a plan that's already been put together. And we're going to have to talk about that sometime this year as a group. Do we do this? And how are we going to do this? Now, I think this is a fairly easy sell comparatively to the other thing I'm going to talk about in a moment. But the thing is, we have to figure out where that money is going to come from. And it won't be cheap. Now, the good news is we already have the money. We already have the money. We sold an old falling down building a couple of years ago, and it should be. I mean, inflation's a thing, so we'll see. But it should be more than enough to be an even trade. 
And keep in mind this, that as all this work has been done, the parking lot that will be proposed is one that will make it possible that if we ever wanted to build here in the future, that's prepared for as well, because it deals with water retention and a bunch of other things. So again, I'm just throwing this out here because it's going to be a conversation we have to have. And if you don't want us to do it, what's your suggestion that we do instead is sort of the question that will come up. But the other place where I want to talk about money a little bit in this next year is this space. This space has gotten more beautiful. We just had the window thing happen. But there are, there are some needs we have, the chief of which is that we are gradually running out of space. Our pews are filling up more and more. And while there certainly is enough space for the moment, if God were to bless us as he has been blessing us, by this time a year or two from now, we're going to be out of space. So how could we bring a few more people into this space? How could we fit a few more pews in this space? And there's a couple answers, but one of them means that big, beautiful, amazing machine in the back maybe needs to move. But to do that, it's going to cost money. And it's going to take some thinking. You have to build something to maybe put it up higher so we can fit more pews back there, right? While we do that, we're also going to talk about what would it look like to create a little more space up here. There's a lot of space up here that we could use for other things, like, say, maybe replacing our old beat-up piano with a nice, beautiful grand piano for our musicians to play on. Now, I bring up the grand piano because I already have experienced individuals who hear the price of a grand piano going price two years ago, about $20,000. And they say, why would we spend money on that? Couldn't we get a much cheaper one? And I just want you to remember what God said about what Jesus said about this woman who wasted all that, that perfume. If there is a place we should waste money, it's on our worship. In fact, I would say if we're not wasting money on our worship, then we're not sacrificing. I want you to consider that again as these conversations happen. Nothing's decided. I have ideas. Other people have ideas. We're going to talk about it more and more. This is just getting it in the air. All right. So from there, the gospel is for proclamation. Christ being one who we know about, who has teachings to observe, is to be something we talk about. One more set of verses to kind of summarize again the book. Turn back again to chapter 16. Chapter 16, we're going to look at verses 13 through 19 and verses 21 through 23. This is a very famous section. You hear it read every year. And in it, uh, Peter is going to understand who Jesus is and not understand who Jesus is at the same time. And this is why the point of the whole book is what Jesus says here and that we have trouble grabbing that. It's hard for us to believe he's going to die. And that means, I mean, you know it now, but the way we experience this now is it's hard for us to believe he's in charge. It's hard for us to believe that when he's in suffering or struggle, that's actually good. It's hard for us to believe when life doesn't go the way I want it, that it's going the way God wants it. And the way God wants it is better. And that all comes back to, look what he would do for us. Look what he says is good. What he says is good is that he dies. What insane, crazy man would say that? Well, one who seems to see a bigger picture than we tend to. Okay, so Matthew 16, verse 13. Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. He asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? So the Gospel of Matthew is about who Jesus is. 
They give a bunch of bad answers. Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He kind of cuts through all that muck. Well, okay, okay. So that's what other people say. Who do you say that I am? Verse 16, Simon Peter replied, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus answered Tim, blessed are you, like a beatitude, notice that? Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. That's what bar Jonah means. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Like, like highlight that in your heart. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, it's not because any man told you. Now, it is because someone told you, but that's not why you believe. You believe it because the Father in heaven has revealed this to you, right? So Matthew 28, the Gospels for instruction. Matthew 26, the Gospels for proclamation. Matthew 16, the Gospel is for revelation, It reveals to you the truth that he is the Christ. And on this rock, verse 18, Jesus says, I'm going to build my assembly. I'm going to call people out of darkness. And the gates of hell, the gates of Sheol, the gates of death, they shall not prevail against me, Jesus, building this. Mm -hmm. I will give you, that's all plural, the keys of the kingdom. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in, yeah, shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And from there, we can talk about the power of forgiveness and why I stand up here every week and I forgive your sins in that power that we all share, that is, it's owned by all of us, but it's exercised by me so that you might hear it, yeah? Now, what's powerful, though, again, is God is revealed to Christ, excuse me, God has revealed to Peter that Jesus is the Christ, and Jesus says, okay, you believe who I am. Now, let me talk about who I am. Verse 21, from that time... Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen. That's the equivalent of, I know the Bible says that, but I don't want to believe it. And Jesus says to him, he turns and says, get behind me, Satan. Not the first time in the gospel, he'll say, be gone, Satan. The second time, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. What is the revelation of the gospel of Matthew 4 and truly the whole Bible? To have you set your mind on the things of God. By attending to these words, by being made a disciple of these words, by proclaiming these words, whichever ones you find, whatever speaks to you, whatever wakes you up. Yes. And again, I encourage you then to go home. And if you've jotted down Matthew 28 or Matthew 26 or Matthew 16, reread these very sections this week. Let them be something that you remember, that you can hear and hold on to. And I'll make the same case with the first seven words here in just a few moments. But now, shifting, that's the first thing we're going to do. Second thing is structure. Third thing is the seven first words of Jesus. So we're going to talk about the structure of the book. So I want you to flip all the way to chapter one. And I want you to kind of hold open chapter one in your Bible, whatever it looks like to you. And if it's your own personal Bible, hopefully these things are becoming like, like, let me step down for a second again, like, I preach from the Pew Bible because the Pew Bible's got the same translation that's in the pews, and I don't want to mess everything up with different translations, but I cannot find my way through this the same way I can find my way through this. I can find my way through this really fast. This, ah, I got to work on it a little bit. 
So bringing your own Bible to church and using it during this time is getting familiarity with the tool itself. Um, I remember one of the things uh, that I learned, I believe it was Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Palatine. Uh, now, if this is an apocryphal story, someone on the internet will correct me, but uh, there was a time when I was at Bethany Lutheran Church in Naperville and I was coaching boys basketball. And we weren't known for being a basketball powerhouse. I was very proud of us that we made this, the, the state tournament, Lutheran School State Tournament, um, every year that I coached. And that was a big success for us. And one of those years, in fact, it was our better year, in the second round, we had to play against Emmanuel Palatine. Emmanuel Palatine is a powerhouse. They had won the state repeatedly. Them and Christ Peoria, always at it with each other. And they go on to nationals every year. Those kids could beat high school teams. This is one of the best basketball teams I have ever seen. One of the things they did as a program is every kid got his own ball. And they were supposed to carry that ball all over the place. Walk around with that ball. Take the ball to school. Take the ball to bed. Sit on the couch, watch TV. You hold the ball. Why? Because then you know how to hold a ball. It becomes part of you. It becomes natural. You don't have to think about, okay, I'm going to pass the ball now. You just pass the ball. Now, that concept is what I want you to do with your own Bible, to become familiar with it. It's a tool to be used. Okay, so whichever Bible you're using now, chapter one of Matthew, and I want you to kind of keep it open and flip to chapter four, verse 16. That section, as you look through it, there's a genealogy of Jesus, there's a birth of Jesus, there's the wise men, there's John the Baptist, there's the temptation. Jesus doesn't preach through any of that. He talks to John at his baptism, he talks to the devil, but there's no preaching. 4 verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach. So that section, the first part of the, of the gospel, chapter 1 through 4, 16, that's the first structure piece of it. And what it is, is the presentation of the Christ. It's all about how he showed up, where he came from, why that matters. From 416 on or 417 on, if you put your finger there and shift to 11 verse 1. This is uh, on page 969. This point is the halfway mark of the Gospel of Matthew. 11 verse 1 says, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Notice the focus on preaching again. And then verse 2, now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples. You never were told before this that John got arrested. And everything in the story from he preached, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, all the way up to the calling of the 12 and instructing them in chapter 10, everything's going very well. So after the presentation of the Christ, you have the rise of the Christ, where bigger and bigger crowds are coming out to hear him. So he has to like get on a boat to be able to talk because they're pressing him against the shore. But then suddenly... At 11 verse 2, the gospel turns from everybody loves Jesus to not everybody's so sure about Jesus, even John the Baptist. So from 11 verse 2 up until, where's my note, 16 verse 20, you have the rising conflict around the Christ, where he begins to be confronted by his enemies. But again, it starts with John the Baptist himself saying, are you the one? Or should we wait for someone else? Because I'm in jail, and that's not what I thought would happen. 
Yeah? So you have this rising conflict that takes place up into 16 verse 20. Let's go ahead and turn there and look at that verse. 16 verse 20, which is right after what we just looked at, right? Where he says, Peter on this rock, I'll bring, build my church. He says then in verse 20, he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So suddenly you have this kind of hiding that's taking place. And again, we just looked at 1621. He begins to talk about his death. Now you have the passion of the Christ. From this point on, everything is about how I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. He says it three times and then he does it. All right. So Matthew 1 through 4, the presentation of the Christ, the rest of 4 through 11, the rise of the Christ, 12 all the way through 16, the conflict surrounding the Christ, and then 16 through 28, the passion, or the suffering and death of the Christ. That's one of the two major structures the book is built around. And we're in the middle part of the sermon here. We're talking about structure. There's one more type of structure it's built around. We're going to do the same thing that we just did with it. Now I want you to turn to chapter 5, verse 3. If you have a red-letter Bible, this part's going to be easier. It's going to jump out. Okay, so the other structure in the book is there are these five sermons and these five sermons are long sections where Jesus just talks and talks and talks. It's almost like you could just put him on a TV and his head could sit there and he's a talking head. Whereas if you compare the gospel of Mark to this, Jesus never stands still. You can't stop him. He's going there. He's going there. He says this, but then he moves on. So a very, very different portrayal of the same guy. These five sermons have themes. They have meanings or points that they have. The most famous one starts at 5 verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It goes all the way until 7 verse 28. The last words of the sermon are, um, in verse 27, The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the crash of it. You might remember this, the the parable of the man who built his house on the stone and the man who built his house on the sand. Uh, We don't have the epiphany banners up here anymore, but Matthew 6.24 is on one of them. Matthew 6.24, build your house on the rock. So the first theme we had the first year I was here, St. Paul, was build on the rock, which is the words of Christ. All right, so this Sermon on the Mount from 5.3 up until uh, uh, 7.27, that's the rock. That's the God who is here to speak for us. This Wednesday, we'll look at this sermon a little more clearly. We're going to focus on this during the Wednesday stuff. But for today, if you've got the red letters, just or even not, just look how much he says. That's a lot of talking. I mean, I, I'm doing it right now, I suppose, but that's a lot of talking. All right, the second one, uh, let me say one more thing. So the theme of the Sermon on the Mount, though, is discipleship. It's you being disciplined in Jesus' words. Matthew 28 again. That's what it's about. The second sermon is in Matthew chapter 10, 5 through the end of that chapter. It's it's a little shorter. And it's very specific. It's narrow. This happens right after he calls 12 men to be his apostles. And he begins to instruct them. So if you look at 10 verse 5, it says, These 12 Jesus sent out instructing them. And he says, go nowhere among the Gentiles. Remember how just a few moments ago I said, go 
and make disciples of all nations. And I complained about how we don't always translate things with the same words with baptism and how it comes into English differently. Okay, well, this word Gentiles right here, guess what it is? It's that word nations. It's the same word, same Greek word. Why is it Gentiles now and nations later? I don't know. I don't know. What does Gentile mean? It means someone who doesn't have Jewish blood. You know, you're a Harry Potter fan. It means mud blood. Gentile means mud blood. And it was a racist term that the Jews used. I don't think I'm an anti-Semite for saying that first century Judaism was racist. But the gospel is for all. Except for here, it's not. Notice how he says, don't go among them. Don't go to the nations. It's the opposite of what he says in Matthew 28. Why is this? Because this sending of the 12, this sermon, is about their going to the Jews first. Because the gospel was for them first. The Bible is very clear about this. They're going to them first and they're to wipe their feet off if they're rejected. And then they're to return to him, having accomplished whatever he wants them to accomplish. When they come back, they're going to say, we cast out demons. He's like, yeah, you did. I told you you could. But there's a big important thing here. All of these miracles that they do, he tells them, go do this, not among the Gentiles. What does he say to do among the Gentiles? Baptize and teach. If you can follow me, it's a kind of a fast move, but this is why there aren't miracles in the church now. It's because they were sent as a testimony against the Jews who rejected Jesus at that time. And this sermon is all about that. All right. So instructions for the 12 as they go out to proclaim Christ among the Jews. Second sermon. Third sermon. Chapter 12, verse 25, through chapter 13, verse 52. There are a few bits that aren't read in this, but almost all of it is, I believe. I don't have red letters in front of me, so I can't quite point to it for you. But this is the sermon of stories, the sermon of parables. And here you're going to have then the story of the sower, the story of the tares, the story of the seed, the story of the leaven, the story of the treasure, the story of the pearl, the story of the net. It seems to end, but he has a little bit more. He'll tell the story of the scribe shortly after. Eight different stories all about the kingdom of God, which we're going to look at the first seven words in a moment. One of the first seven words and the first thing he preaches is repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. So discipline, being a disciple in Jesus, following him means knowing you're part of his kingdom. And this third discourse, the sermon on the stories, is all about what this kingdom is like. Again, like a sower. I'll try to do these real quick. Do you remember them? He throws out the seed. There's four types of soil. Good, rocky, weedy, and the path. On the path, they don't believe at all. On the weedy, they believe, but it gets choked because they're too concerned with this world. On the rocky, they grow up a little bit and believe, but then the suffering of persecution comes and they are they're scorched by the heat of it. And then the good soil continues to believe. He keeps with this planting, growing theme, though, in the second story of the tares. It's not just good seed growing in the world. There's also bad seed that's there. Wheat, uh, I, I don't... I don't eat a lot of wheat. It's filled with carbs. But, but it's a commonplace thing for people to eat, and it's good for you compared to tares. The thing about tares is that it looks just like wheat. So the tare is a plant that looks like wheat but has no kernel you can eat. You see the connection there? They appear the same growing together. You wouldn't be able to tell the difference between a field of wheat and a field of tares. And the story is about how in the field that God planted wheat, there are a bunch of tares. 
in the world that was made to be filled with faithful people. There are faithful people and there are unfaithful people. The kingdom of God is like these faithful people in the midst of the unbelievers. That's the second story. Then you have the seed, not a wheat seed, but a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all the seeds of the garden. If you think about, you know, your spice cabinet, all the things that grow into spice, the mustard seed is the smallest of these. And yet, what does it turn into as a plant? It's a huge bush, in fact, and birds can nest in it. The kingdom of God is like that. What does that mean? It means it doesn't look like much when you see it. But what it's going to do is a whole lot more. What does baptism look like when you see it? Yeah, some water poured on someone's face. What's it going to do? It's going to raise you from the dead. Huh? Parable of the seed. Then you have the parable of the leaven. Similar idea. You take a little yeast. You put it in the batch of flour. Here's your wheat you've gathered, right? Notice the focus on the common foods uh, and the, the plants that grow that we eat. You put a little leaven, a little yeast in the wheat. Do you see it? No. You can smell it, though. Uh, but you don't see it, and now you bake it, what happens? If it's not there, you get a little flat, lumpy thing, right? If it's there, you get this beautiful, big, airy thing that comes up. And it makes, it, if you put the leaven in it, does this like part of the dough get lifted up? No, it lifts up everything, right? So the kingdom of God is like yeast, which when it's inserted into the world, lifts up the entire world, right? And again, this is what us as the church are. We are that leaven which the word of God calling us salt and light has made us to be. Parable of the leaven, parable of the treasure. A man finds a treasure in a field. He goes and he sells everything he has. He buys that field. The parable of the pearl, which is right next to it, says a man finds a pearl of great price in the market. He goes, he sells everything he has to get that pearl of great price. The kingdom of God is like that. And there's two different ways you can read those stories. I think they're both good. One is that Jesus is the man. And you are the treasure and the pearl. So Jesus sees you captive by the devil. He considers you of great price. He goes and sells all that he has on the cross in order to make you his own. I think that's beautiful. I think it's true. I'm not convinced that's the point of the parable, but it could be. Because I think the other side of the parable fits within the structure of the story. All the stories he's telling. The kingdom of God is like the seed and all this. So then once you've realized this, how good this invisible kingdom is, how it's going to change you, how it's going to make you rise from the dead, once you've found that treasure, once you've found that pearl, what's the world to you? How much value is it to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? And so would you not sell all you have in order to retain your faith in Christ? And I do believe that is the discipline he wants you to say yes to. This is not to say that you by your works shall keep your faith. That's not the point at all. The point instead is to say you want to hold on to your faith. You see the value of this word that's been given to you that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. A treasure, pearl, net. The story of the net. That God drags a net through the ocean and it gets both good fish and bad fish. And at the end of time, he separates them. The bad are thrown away, the good are kept. That is how the church works. That through history, this gospel of his kingdom is being preached in places like this, and it's dragging in all sorts of people, believers and even unbelievers sometimes. And at the end of time, those who believe, they will find that they are in the net of Jesus Christ. Finally, the parable of the scribe, this one's kind of, it's, it's a toughie, right? He talks about how the kingdom of God is like a scribe someone who keeps track of records, who brings out from the library old things and new things. 
And that is really about how this kingdom that he's been preaching is going to leave behind the Old Testament forms and structures, the sacrifices, by fulfilling them and bringing forth a New Testament in his blood, which is going to lead to that Lord's Supper talk, which will show up a little later in the book. All right. Third discourse, third sermon, the Sermon of the Stories. There's two more sermons we're going to look at structure-wise. Uh, they are then, i turn this guy over, uh, chapter 18, verse 3, for, through chapter 20, verse 27. Um, Matthew 18 is commonly known as the place you go for reconciliation. This sermon is a sermon on forgiveness. Not just the forgiveness of sins that God gives you from Jesus, but the promise. Now, don't hear me, hear me, not the command, the promise that you who are forgiven in Christ are going to forgive each other. That you will want to live at peace with each other because of forgiveness. That no matter how many times someone sins against you, seven, 49, 490, it doesn't matter. Your desire is to be at peace. And this whole sermon is about the goodness of that and how we as God as assembled people are to pursue that peace. That's the fourth sermon in the book. And finally, chapter 23, 2 through chapter 26, you have the sermon on the end of the world. In this, he's going to condemn, again, the Pharisees and scribes who sit in the power of God, but don't understand what it means who keep others from entering into this kingdom that he's been preaching. And then he'll begin to talk about the destruction of the temple, which he prophesies will take place. And it did take place because the sacrifices were no longer needed. And then he'll begin to talk about the very, very end of the world. He'll tell a couple more stories. The story of the 10 virgins, the story of the sheep and the goats. These are stories about, again, keeping what God has said, watching for his return, trusting in who Jesus is according to his words. The fifth discourse that makes that structure of the book of Matthew go. All right, we have just a few moments left here. I want you to turn all the way back to the front of the book, and we're going to look at the first seven words of Jesus. By words, I don't mean you know, individual words. I mean the first seven sentences, the first seven things he says. Anytime you find the number seven as something in the Bible, you should kind of slow down and pay attention because that number does not show up accidentally. And it always is a symbolic emphasis on something. That emphasis is holiness. How do I know that the number seven means holiness in the Bible? Because in Genesis chapter 1, it says he created the world in six days, and on the seventh day he rested. And because on the seventh day he rested, he declared it holy. So the seventh day is a holy day. From that holiness of the worship day, used to be Saturday, since he has risen from the dead, now it's Sunday, from the holiness of that day, the Old Testament prophets and writers begin to use that number to emphasize this like a poet. Is good poetry. And so Matthew has built these seven statements here into the first part of his book. I'm just going to go through and read them all while pointing to them as we go. So first, chapter 3, verse 15. Jesus says, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Chapter 4, verse 4. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
chapter 4, verse 7. Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Chapter 4, verse 10. Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Chapter 4, verse 17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Chapter 4, verse 19. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I think the entire proclamation of Matthew is summarized in those seven words. I'm going to try to give it to you here with just about five minutes. First, let it be so now. It means let go. It means stop trying to tell Jesus what to do. John the Baptist is trying to stop Jesus from being baptized. Before Peter says, you won't be so for you, John the Baptist says, you shouldn't be baptized by me. Jesus says, stop it. Stop trying to be me. Stop trying to be God. Let go. For it is beautiful for me to do this for you. It is beautiful for Jesus to stand in the place of sinners and be baptized. It is beautiful for Jesus to die on the cross. It is beautiful for Jesus to say to you, take and eat. This is me. Let go now and believe that Jesus is fulfilling all righteousness for you. You could translate that again as, let go now, for it is beautiful for us to have justification. To be brought back into righteousness with God. Let go now, for it is beautiful. Number two, because it is written, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Of course, this is in the temptation. He's fighting against the devil. But for you now, the beauty of God being for you that you can let go is to know your life isn't about this world. It's about what God has said. And so living on that word, trusting in that word, eating that word, that is life itself. It is also written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. That is, don't doubt what he said. And stop trying to figure out what it meant in some way. Like, well, are you sure it means this? Because it could mean that. And maybe it means that. Have you ever thought about that? Like, stop it. It's written for a child to understand it. It's, It's very clear. Stop testing God. And instead, you shall worship the Lord your God. Yes, him only shall you serve. Understand that when Jesus says, let go, it's beautiful, it's to bring you into adoration of a God who's going to only give you good. Even the suffering will be turned into an ultimate good on the day of resurrection. And so he can shout, follow me, follow me, stop following yourself, stop trying to make your own way, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men, that is, you're going to be in that net being dragged through history as the church which clings to his word. And as you speak what you believe about Christ, without having to try to go and make disciples, other disciples are going to hear what you say. Be converted, be brought to faith, be brought to encouragement, be brought to confidence in him. Follow me, he says, I skipped one. Uh, Before he says, follow me, he says that centerpiece, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What he meant was, I'm here now. I am the king The reign of God is here now. I'm here now. So repent, which means stop believing everything the devil says and give your heart and your mind to believe in what I say, that the kingdom is here for you. So again, follow me. Where is he going? To the cross. To the cross where he will say, Father, forgive them because blessed are you, the poor in spirit, 
What does poor in spirit mean? It means you don't have a lot of spirit. If you're rich in spirit, you got a lot of spirit. If you're poor in spirit, you don't have a lot of spirit. What kind of spirit? Holy Spirit. Blessed are those who don't have a lot of Holy Spirit. Why? Because he's going to give it to you. He's going to give him to you. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Yours are those he came to save, not the righteous but sinners, as he also says in this very same book. So again, let go. For it is beautiful to know that you don't live on bread, but on the word of God. That testing that will never produce fruit, but that worshiping him is the ultimate fruit. That that comes because he declares you saved. Repent and believe it. Follow him to that cross where you can know for all eternity, blessed are you. And again, especially as we feast upon it in this meal, even now. I do hope I've inspired you to dig in a little more with me. And we'll see you on Wednesday to continue reading the Gospel of Matthew for Lent. In the name of Jesus, amen.